Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're working our way through the book of Romans. And we've seen Paul, for the last the five weeks we've been looking at it, describe our condition apart from Christ. And, and that is, if, if you live an irreligious, uh, even immoral life, we're condemned before God. But if you live a moral life, where you do everything basically right, uh, we still find ourselves condemned before God because God knows that we continue to judge people for doing the very things that we do. Even by our own standards, we can't live up to them. And if you are religious, uh, we find that trying to save ourselves is still the same problem as the immoral pagan, which is that we don't seek God, we seek ourselves. We exchange the glory of God for something mortal. We worship things over God. And that's true of every human being. That is to say that every human being has turned their back on God. You know, and, and, and that is our condition. That we are all, without excuse, before God. That was his point. And it, that would leave us without any hope if there weren't more to say on the subject. Uh, but there is. There is more to say on the subject. Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many, many years, says of the passage we're about to read, this might be the most important paragraph ever written. That's a pretty bold comment, and, and he might be right. This is good news. Before we read it, let's pray together that God might bless the reading of His Word. Father in Heaven, send us Your Spirit that You might bless the reading of Your Word, that You would bless the reflections we have upon it, that You would cause us to see it, to understand it, and to apply it, and to be changed because of it. Help us see Jesus the Savior and rely and lean and trust on Him to Your glory and honor and to our health. We pray that You would nourish and grow Your church through the time we spend in Your Word. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans 3, 21. This is God's holy Word. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's Word. It is completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. 
Rebecca Manley Pipper writes a book called Hope Has Its Reasons, and in it she tells of a time when she was in a courtroom and the defendant was guilty. Now, here are her words. Just as the judge was giving the sentence, a middle-aged man suddenly broke into racking sobs. He was clearly the father of the person on trial, and his anguish changed everything. For a split second, we saw the defendant through a different lens. This was not just a defendant who'd committed a crime. This was somebody's child, grown up, a child still adored and treasured by a father. Even the judge paused, but he had his job to do and resumed sentencing. You can imagine the scene, right? Where you're sitting in there and you're, you know the person's guilty and you see the, the, the righteous sentence coming down and you hear the sobs and in some ways it sort of tears at your heart. It's a, it's a terrible dilemma. Now in movies, the directors are sneaky. What they'll show you is a criminal, but they'll show you his humanity and make you go, oh, I really want him to get off. You ever had that experience? Uh, we just watched the movie The Town, Ben Affleck is a criminal. And you actually hope for him to get away. It's a, a tricky way uh, for directors to only show you part of the story. Or sometimes they'll show you part of the story where all you see is the criminal and nothing else. Think the Coen brothers, No Country for Old Men, and Javier Bardem's just evil character. And how there's nothing that seems even human about him. And all you can hope for is that he gets caught. It's easy to do that in movies. But God sees everything. God is the judge who sees the sin and the crime and knows it deserves to be judged and punished. And so He's prepared to hand out the sentence. But at the same time, He is the Father who looks on His beloved children and His heart cries out. He wears the robe, holds the gavel, and has the heart of the Father that cries out as the sentence is being delivered. It's a terrible tension, and it's, it's all throughout the Bible. If you were to go back to, say, Exodus, very early on, Moses is encountering God in Exodus 33 and 34, and God says of Himself that He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The tension is there. God is the one who describes it. A judge who sees the crime and says it must be punished. And a father who says, I forgive, I have mercy. Rebecca Manley Pippert calls it the... Uh, the, the I've written it down. The unresolvable conflict between justice and mercy. The unresolvable conflict between justice and mercy. I want you to think about that. If God is, is just all mercy but no just, not just at all. If He's mercy and He says, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody makes a mistake. Don't, don't think about it again. We're just going to forget about it. That that God isn't just. He's merciful. He overlooks and, and, and ignores our sins and our shortcomings. And, and, and that sounds great, but here's what ends up happening. It makes God out not caring at all what we do, not caring at all what we're like. And so it takes the law that He gives and prescribes and says, really, 
I know I told you all that stuff, but I just don't care. I'm all mercy, so it doesn't really matter what you do. And it makes the law meaningless, and it makes all that you do meaningless if God just simply overlooks it and doesn't do anything. If God is all just and there's no mercy, then we've read in the last couple of chapters of Romans, we're all condemned, we're all without hope, we're all without any excuse. Our mouths are shut. We stand before God who may say, I'd like to forgive you, but I have to be just, and we're all under condemnation. And the result is if there's no hope for us, then, well, it doesn't really matter what we do. We're already condemned. You might as well just do whatever your appetites call on you to do. If God is simply merciful or He is only just, then it turns out to destroy the law in our lives. It destroys out all kind of healthy living. There's nothing to motivate us to care. It makes life meaningless. And it doesn't matter which it is. What you need is the tension. You need a God who is both just and merciful. And, you know, at the end of this passage it says, it doesn't destroy the law, it upholds it. It doesn't undo everything. It actually reunites and fixes everything in this one God is justice and mercy. But how does He do it? He says, I'm going to demonstrate, I'm going to reveal the righteousness of God. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested or shown. He says it again in uh, verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood he received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness. God's righteousness is revealed. And then I want to show you how God's righteousness is received. God's righteousness revealed and God's righteousness received. Alright, so how do we see God's righteousness? How is it revealed to us? We need to take a look at some of these words. We start with that word righteousness. Righteousness is... A legal word. It's actually a word that says, that describes a, a good standing before an authority, a legal authority. For instance, if uh, you have not transgressed any of the laws of the state of Mississippi, if and you have done what the law requires you to do, like pay your taxes and carry insurance on your car, if you've done the things the law requires and not broken any other laws, then you are in a righteous standing According to the state of Mississippi, you've satisfied that authority. You see, we've already learned, though, that no human being is righteous before God. There is no one righteous, not even one. And so none of us are righteous before God. None of us have that good standing before this authority of God. And so the only thing that we have to hope for is that God would do something. And of course, that's what verse 21 says. But now, in light of our sin and our closed mouths and of our guilt... And of our powerlessness, now God does something. Verse 22, it's a righteousness of God through faith. That righteousness, he says in verse 24, that we are justified by His grace. Now, it seems like we've switched words, but we really haven't. In, in Paul, in Greek, the word for righteousness and the word for justice are the exact same word. It, it could be rendered like this. Verse 24, and are righteous by His grace as a gift. A righteous nest. I don't know how you'd make a, a good verb out of that. But that's what he says. He says, God makes you 
righteous before Him. He gives you a righteous standing before Him. That's what righteousness is. You now have a good standing before God. That's being revealed. How to have a a good, just, justified, righteous standing before God. Let me look at another word. How does God do it? He does it graciously. Verse 24, And are justified by His grace as a gift. That, that phrase, as a gift, is one word that Paul wrote, and it literally means without cause. It means freely. Some of your translations will, call, will write it down. God justified without anything in you or anything that was uh, external to what He just wanted to do. He gave it to you without reason, without cost, simply as a gift. That's what it says. In Galatians 2, I want you to hear this. Galatians 2, verse 21, it says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could become righteous by the law and by obedience, then Christ didn't need to die. His death was a waste. Well, that phrase, for no purpose, is the same word as as a gift here. Literally, it means... There wasn't a purpose, there wasn't uh, uh, something in you that won this justified nature. There wasn't the tiniest little bit of goodness that God saw and goes, Oh, look at that, I, I, I almost could have missed it. But there's a little piece there that won his attention. No, he gave you justification, though you were utterly opposed to him. He gave it to you completely and utterly unearned. That's what it means to be by grace without cause. We're not contributors. The only thing we contribute to salvation, to justification, is our need. And that's it. We bring utterly open hands and say, I don't have anything to offer. And God gives you righteousness. Right? That's two words. Righteousness and then the, the word for as a gift. I want you to look at another one. The word is Redemption. You are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a very technical commerce word. It was a word used when someone would go and pay for a slave in order to set them free from that slavery. You can imagine some scenario maybe like this, where a wealthy person had gotten some a service from someone who was a slave. And they were a slave because they owed a debt to someone and couldn't pay it. And that's how you worked off your, your debts as you became a slave to them. And so the wealthy person says, hey, this person did a favor for me. I'm going to pay their debt. And he hands the money over to the person who owns the slave. And then the slave becomes free. You see, Paul has just described how every one of us, by our natures, were slaves to sin, completely unable to save ourselves. And and, and the idea of redemption is that Jesus comes along and breaks that slavery by paying your debts. Now, before you go too far with this, we might say, well, who did he pay the debt to? And the long-term idea in the history of the church was that perhaps we were slaves to the devil and Jesus paid a debt to the devil so that we could be free. but, But that's not really the idea. If you, if you go too far, you're going to kind of undo the analogy. 
The analogy is simply this. We're slaves to sin, and Christ paid something that broke that slavery. He paid His own blood. He gave His life, and it broke the power of sin in you. You see, here was the problem. Before Christ justified us, before we were righteous in God's sight, every good thing that we did was self-motivated. Every good thing that we did was a way to say, see God, I'm doing okay. I'm trying to save myself and I don't need any help. Everything was self-oriented. Everything. We were unable to do anything because God was worthy. Our hearts were too tied up in it. Now, if Christ has paid all your debts, if you owe nothing to God to make Him pleased with you, the good works that you do don't gain you anything. There's no commerce between you and God anymore. You don't have to earn anything. You've already got it. And so if you have everything, you can actually now offer a good work just because Jesus is worthy. Just as an act of worship. And that's the only way a, a good deed can be truly good. You see, He's broken the power of sin in your life because He's paid your debts and you owe nothing. And you can finally do something that doesn't serve you. That, that's the beauty of this. That's how it upholds the law. And so God gives us this righteous legal standing before Him. He gives it to us graciously without cause, without a reason in us. He redeems us breaking the power of sin. And He makes a propitiation for us. This is a uniquely religious word. Verse 25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. The word propitiation literally means to offer something, usually as a sacrifice, to satisfy a, a, a God or a person. In this case, it's used in a religious connotation where someone makes a sacrifice of blood to please God. J.I. Packer tells this story. Prince Paris had carried off Princess Helen to Troy. The Greek force had taken a ship to recover her, but was held up halfway by persistent contrary winds. Agamemnon, the Greek general, sent home for his daughter and ceremonially slaughtered her as a sacrifice to mollify the evidently hostile gods. And the move paid off. West winds blew again, and the fleet reached Troy without further difficulty. You hear that barbaric idea in the pagan religions, and you think, how did that barbaric idea of propitiation get into the Bible? Here was someone who sacrificed his daughter in a ceremony of worship in order to you know, bribe a God into giving them, you know, good blessings. Isn't that what's going on here? We, we sacrifice a son in order to bribe the God into giving us blessings? Propitiation in the Bible, and it runs all throughout, it's this idea that God rightly has a wrath against our sin, rightly is going to punish sins. But instead of us finding a sacrifice that will, you know, turn that wrath away, that will bribe him into blessings, 
God Himself becomes the sacrifice. God Himself says, I will satisfy the wrath of God. It's not you doing it. You see, all the other religions said, you find something that you can sacrifice to show your devotion enough, and the gods might go, oh, that was pretty serious. I guess I can be talked into it. God says, I will provide. I will send my son. God put him forth as a propitiation. God sent the Son of God to absorb the wrath of God against us. Look look how it works. He became a propitiation by his blood, that is his death. Verse At the end of the verse, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God had not punished Abraham for his lying and for his putting his wife in danger and for his uh, various selfishness, for his having children out of wedlock. He was kind of a, a really... Well, he's not the greatest example. He's not the kind of person you hope your children turn out to be. And God had not punished those sins. Moses murdered an Egyptian, and God did not punish that sin. David murdered one of his own countrymen in order to take his wife as his own. God did not punish the murder or the adultery. You know, the the wrath of God, the punishment of God that was supposed to fall on the sins never fell on them. Because what God had done is He had taken Abraham's deceit and He had taken Moses' murder and He had taken David's adultery and He had taken it all and put it on Jesus. And then the wrath that God had stored up for Abraham and Moses and David, He poured out on Jesus. And God was satisfied with Abraham and Moses and David. And, And it wasn't just the sins then Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He didn't just take the sins of the Old Testament and put them on Jesus. He took the ones who came after him. He took Peter's denials. He took Paul's persecutions. He took Thomas's doubts. He took your sins, your greed, your unrighteous anger, your anxiety and your fear. He took all of your sins and He put them on Jesus. And He poured out His wrath on Jesus so that you would never experience it. And God is completely satisfied with you. There's no no sin left to burn. There's no sin left to punish. He's already done it in Christ. The uh, settlers who were moving west got out to the prairie land in the middle of America. And there was tall but dry grass. And occasionally you would see one of those fires come sweeping through. And and then you throw in that there's no trees to block the wind. And so the wind would send that, that flame fast and cause it to, you know, really burn quickly. And it would rush across and destroy everything in its path. Well, the settlers learned that the way to avoid the fires was to burn a patch of grass around your camp. So when you were setting up camp, you burned a big chunk of grass to make a big circle in which your camp sat in the middle. And then should one of those fires come, it didn't matter how fast or how hot or how terrible or how destructive that fire was, when it got to the camp, 
There was nothing there to burn. It had already burned, and the fire would simply go around. And, and, and here's what God's righteousness is saying. God's wrath has already burned against your sin. And there's nothing left to burn. There's nothing left to burn. There's nothing left to punish. He's already punished it because Jesus demonstrates God's righteousness. He did not leave your sins or anyone else's unpunished. He already punished them in Jesus. And so there's His righteousness, but there's His mercy. He brought His righteousness, His justice together at the cross. And He said, here's how I will be both merciful and righteous. I'll punish their sins, but I'll take their sins from them and I'll put them on My Son and they'll be free. God is just and merciful and He brings them together. How do we... How do we get in the circle? The, the circle that's already burned. How do, how do we get this righteousness? Well, he tells you very clearly. Verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith you must believe. Faith is literally trust. It's leaning your way on something. The way you would trust a map to give you directions. The way you would trust a chair that you actually sit on to hold you up. You trust Jesus to be the one who saves you. It's not just faith in general, but faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus' blood. Faith in His propitiating work. Faith in His redemption. That you trust that Jesus is actually the one who clothes you in that righteousness. And this is the beauty. This becomes the only environment in which the law of God can be upheld. You see, God does care what you do. The things you do matter. Your obedience matters. God cares. He doesn't leave it unpunished. He doesn't leave it just to ignore. He punished it in His Son. And He shows you how deadly sin is. Not that you would experience it, but that you would see it. The Son of God absorbed God's righteous anger against your sins. He cares. But He also is merciful. And now He says... I've paid all your debts. I've redeemed you from this slavery. I've satisfied God on your behalf. Now in this mercy, live. Trust. Rest. Let me tell you how you'll know if, you're, if you've gotten this. If you've really gotten the idea that God has utterly satisfied His demands for you. If you understand that God has completely spent his wrath that was for your sins, here's how you'll know. What do you boast in? What becomes your boast? And, and by boast, Tim Keller says it this way, your boast is what gives you confidence as you move out into the world. What gives you confidence? Is it because I'm, I'm pretty well liked, I have charisma, and that's what gives me confidence in the world, then that's your righteousness. If you say, but I'm, I'm pretty accomplished in the business world and I've done things that are respectable, then that, if that's what gives you confidence to move into the world and to enter into relationships and to kind of be who you are, then that's your righteousness. What is it that fills you? What is it you boast in? What is it you like to celebrate? That's your righteousness. And Paul says this, what becomes of our boasting? 
it is excluded. We, if, if we get this, we look at our business accomplishments and we say, you know what, I'm glad and all, but it couldn't do much for me. We look at our reputation and our relationships and our appearance and our body image and we, we take all those things and we say, not enough. You know what? Jesus freed me from those things. Jesus satisfied God for me and now He's my boast. You know what? If I get criticized or if I fail at something, well, you know what? I, I knew I was. I knew I was broken before God already. I knew that I was in desperate trouble. But Jesus loves me because He satisfied all of God's demands already. And if I know that that's true, that becomes my boast. What do you boast in? That's your righteousness. That's what you hope will make you okay before God. Dear friend, Jesus is the one to boast in. Trust in Him. The hymn writers tell you how to boast in Jesus. And they do it great. John Newton, just listen to him. Just listen to him boast in knowing the righteousness of Christ. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Let us wonder... Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store when through grace in Christ our trust is justice smiles and asks no more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we boast in Christ. He is magnificent and beautiful. And now, because of Him, we can really believe that Your justice looks on us and smiles and asks no more. Our debts are paid. You are satisfied. And we are righteous all because of Jesus. You have hushed the law's loud thunder. You have quenched the flame of Mount Sinai that would have burned us and we stand in the pack that's already burned to burn never, ever again. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the righteousness that's given to us freely. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But hallelujah, it is ours and Jesus is great. And so we honor Him. We sing to Him. We boast in Him. And we pray in His name. Amen.